The scripture reading this morning is Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 16, 28 through 32, 33 through 35. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their, si from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions and gathered there. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. The word of our Lord. Thanks, Deanne. Thank you so much. <coughs> well, what a joy to be with you this morning. I have a, uh, a ritual that I regularly practice and enjoy, um, although it does kind of mystify me a little bit when I think about it. The ritual is that whenever I go to um, a special event, like let's say um, a, a sporting event or a great movie, um, afterwards, like the next day or sometime during that following week, I like to read about the event and, and what happened during that event. Um, case in point, I don't know if you, rem if you remember or if you saw Top Gun Maverick that came out maybe a year ago or back in the fall or something. Well, when I was a little kid, I loved the original Top Gun. I had, uh, I, I had a vinyl record of the uh, soundtrack. It was like my first vinyl record. And so when the new, when the new film was going to come out, I was eagerly anticipating it, looking forward to it. It came out. I went to saw it. It blew me, blew my expectations out out of the water. It was way better than I imagined it possibly could be. And so after it was over, I wanted to read about the making of the film and learn more about it. You might have learned some of these facts, um, have heard some of these facts about this film as well. Um, did you know that Paramount Pictures rented fighter jets from the United States Navy at a rate of $11,300 an hour? Uh, that was a fun fact to learn. Um, filming high-speed jets required predicting weather up to 50 miles away. You, if you saw the film, you might remember the Dark Star flyover scene. Well, that scene was filmed only once, and they destroyed the set. Meg Ryan and Kelly McGinnis were not invited back for the sequel. Val Kilmer, uh, he was the one who had the idea for Iceman to share his illness as part of the film. And since he was not able to talk, he had lost his voice, they used artificial intelligence to uh, recreate his voice from the first film um, back in the 80s. 
And then, uh, I don't know the fi- if you saw that the, the final scene was filmed in Tom Cruise's private airplane, his private jet. Because, you know, Tom has to have at least one scene in his private jet, like you do. Now, I know that I'm not alone in this ritual of reading about or thinking about an event after it's over. Um, uh, sometimes, and it's just kind of fun to do that. Um, and the reason, of course, is because it's in the, it's in the, it's in the recalling of the experience um, that this experience actually sets in a little bit more deeply, and it takes on greater significance in the remembering of it. You see, memory, the practice of remembering, it seals and it clarifies the experience that we had, and it allows us to see deeper meaning and deeper significance in experiences that we didn't get at the time. I would imagine that much of what we find in the Bible, the events in the Bible, became a lot more clear in the writing and in the retelling of the events than during the events themselves. For example, on Friday night at the crucifixion when Jesus was was executed, um, the disciples who were there at that crucifixion, in, the, in that moment, I don't think that they received that as a gesture of God's love. No, that didn't come until later. I imagine Moses, when he had led the people out of slavery and crossing the Red Sea and all of the plagues and all of that stuff, became a lot more clearer to Moses later as he remembered them. The late professor Fred Craddock says that there are three ways to know an event or an experience in our lives. The first is anticipating the event. The second is experiencing the event. And the third is remembering the event. But the first two, you're hindered by something. In the anticipation of the event, you might eagerly look forward to it, but you're hindered by the fact that you don't know exactly how it's going to turn out. Something could go terribly wrong. In the event itself, at the moment, during the event, let's say it's a Utes football game, Craddock says that in the middle of the event, we're hindered by the clutter and the confusion of everything happening so fast at one time. But it's actually in the remembering of the event that we're able to recognize and realize and find a deeper understanding of what we actually just experienced. This is why John Dewey said that we don't learn from experience. We learn from reflecting on our experience a big difference there. Maybe the best example of this is a wedding. You know, you think about, uh, for those of you who are married, the, the, the engagement first begins. There's all the anticipation of the big day to come, all the planning that's going to go into the wedding. Usually, I think maybe it's the bride who's also worried about all the things that could go wrong on that big day, and so all of the planning is very meticulous, but there's anxiety in the anticipation. Something could go wrong. Then there's the wedding itself, and um, I don't know, at least in my wedding, and Devin and I kind of talked about this uh, 20 years ago, the thing was such a blur. there was so, so all this hype of emotion and all of this that it was just enough to get through the thing. 
But it then, but then when the photos come in and the video comes in and the cards and the gifts, maybe after the honeymoon and the guest book, you sit and reflect and the couple gets to relive the event and remember how much fun people actually had and, and things like that. And it's in the recalling of the event that it actually sinks in. Well, this is a lot of what was going on on uh, the first day of the week after the death by crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. Two of his followers were practicing this ritual of remembering their glorious time with Jesus while he was still with them. They wanted to seal their experience, their relationship, because now he's gone. And it seems to them that he's not coming back. And so they begin going for a walk. They had been hiding in Jerusalem following the devastating events of the week before, all the conflict and the crisis, the conspiracy by his enemies, his arrest, trial, humiliation, death. He couldn't, they couldn't be in Jerusalem anymore. It was for them a crushing experience, an experience of profound personal loss. And so they had come to love this man, strong, good, compelling, vulnerable human being who seemed to so love the world and them that everything was fresh and new. And now at the ripe young age at, of 33, he's dead. He's gone. So in addition to the larger crisis of what his death symbolized, there was also just the personal pain and grief of these two disciples. And so they go for a walk. They're remembering. They're doing exactly what you're supposed to do in grief. Um, in the face of grief, you need to talk. After the funeral is over, the family gathers together around the table and they break bread and they tell stories of that person's life. And, and that is when the slow but sure healing process actually begins, is after the funeral at the table, telling stories, saying things like, remember when she used to, or remember that time when, and it's in the remembering that the relationship is sealed. And so that's what these two are doing, so it appears. And Luke tells us that the, these two disciples are named Cleopas, and the other one is unnamed. So they're not part of the 12. And there's mystery here. Um, who, who is the unnamed person, uh, disciple here? And who in the world is Cleopas? We don't know anything about Cleopas. Plus, the location of Emmaus remains a mystery. It's never been determined. The name is familiar, and if you go to Israel, there's surely a tourist site where you can visit a place they would call Emmaus and a little road that pilgrims have put together to walk up and down and take pictures. But anybody who's there will assure you, if they know, that we've never actually found Emmaus. It's never been determined. Emmaus can be a metaphor for whenever you need to get away from Jerusalem, whenever you need to go where you need to walk and think and grieve and remember. And maybe the two people on the road are anyone who's ever lost a dear one, a dream, a hope, a plan, anyone who ever had to live with unrealized expectation or with gnawing, relentless grief. In other words, Luke might suggest that this unnamed companion could be any one of us or every one of us. 
Henry Nouwen wrote this. He said, sometimes it seems that life is just one long series of losses. When we were born, we lost the safety of the womb. When we went to school, we lost the security of family life. When we got our first job, we lost the freedom of our youth. When we grew old, we lost our good looks. Happy Easter, by the way. <laughs> when, we, when we became weak or ill, we lost our physical independence. And when we die, we will lose it all. The losses that settle themselves deeply in our hearts and minds are the loss of intimacy, the loss of innocence, the loss of love, the loss of our dreams. Maybe Emmaus is where you go when your sense of loss weighs you down. And while you walk to Emmaus, you remember your way through your losses, walking and talking about what you had but no longer have, what you had hoped for but can no longer realize, who you used to be, who you are now, and who you can and must become. And it's in the middle of this vulnerable and human experience that these two people, these two disciples on the road are now met by a third companion. A third person shows up and there's mystery again. It's Jesus, but they don't know it's Jesus. They can't recognize Jesus. Why can't they recognize Jesus? He was their friend. One commentator suggests that, well, maybe they were walking west into the setting of the sun and it was just too bright and they couldn't see him. Okay, maybe. Um, or is it not that in the midst of the clutter and confusion of the present moment and when we're caught in a kind of grief as these two disciples were, we have a hard time of making out what is right in front of us and understanding what is right before us and the importance of what's happening. But in any event, Jesus joins the conversation. He asks them what they were discussing. They tell him the events of the past few days, this Jesus. And by the way, how do you not know about this? That's what kind of what one of them says to Jesus. How did you not hear about this? Where have you been? And of course, when you're in the middle of grief, um, the sense is that everyone else should be aware of this as well. So they tell him the events of the last few days and all of the hopes and his death and the rumor. They heard a rumor that he was still alive, but they have no evidence of this. All of the clutter and confusion. And then he, this unknown companion, Jesus, leads them through their own story, through their own scriptures, through their own religious tradition to, to remind them again of the story and to help them to see that this is the way that it was supposed to be. All of the events have actually been leading up to this. And so he's helping them to remember the larger framework. Compelled by this, they invite the stranger to stay with them. And at table, he takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it to them. And they remember, their eyes were open, Luke says, and they recognized him. They recognized him in the breaking of bread. And the guest, he was a guest, became the host. These familiar words that were spoken at the feeding of the 5,000, that were spoken at the, the Last Supper, and then the experience ends, the stranger disappears, and they say to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? 
And instead of remaining in Emmaus or staying the night in Emmaus, they turn right back around and go back to Jerusalem. Um, and this is what Luke says. They, then they told what had happened on the road, how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This rather common experience with the risen Lord becomes a source of rebirth for them. And so tears become laughter, grief becomes energy, new creativity, new life, new hope, new vigor. I love the way the Bible reassures me um, that faith is a gift given to us by God. Sometimes given through other people, a relative, um, a Sunday school teacher, a mentor, a confirmation class teacher, um, a friend. But faith is not something that you can force or coerce on yourself or others. Faith is like love in that regard. You cannot will yourself to have faith. You cannot will someone else to have faith, just like you cannot will yourself to love. It is a gift. And one of the more profound theological um, understandings of the Reformation is that our, even our ability to believe in God is itself a gift from God. And I love the way that the Bible assures me that the gift of faith is given in experiences that are just so common and so ordinary, like breaking bread and walking down a dusty road. You know, the Easter event, it didn't come with a whole bunch of fireworks. It didn't, there wasn't a whole lot of marketing flair. There wasn't a, uh, an advertising campaign about it. Uh, well, why not, though? I mean, why didn't Jesus, the risen Christ, appear to Pilate and Caiaphas, the high priest? I mean, that would have certainly cleared up a whole lot of misunderstanding, wouldn't it? I mean, why didn't he come show himself in the temple? That would have been perfect. They all would have been convinced. Why all the ambiguity and all the uncertainty? Why not some proof for people who were powerful, the movers and the shakers who could really make a difference in society? Why these two anonymous characters? Maybe it's because God wants us to know that God reveals himself and his love in ordinary ways to ordinary people. Maybe that's the whole point. The risen Christ comes to those who are trying to follow him, trying to love him, trying to be his people, trying to remember. He doesn't come as proof to convince powerful, skeptical unbelievers. He comes to his friends, those who know him, those who love him, and it's his gift to them. God comes to us in ways that are everyday and ordinary as common as a late afternoon walk and bread broken and a meal shared. Frederick Buechner, the late Presbyterian minister, he wrote about this idea his whole life. It's one of his excerpts. He wrote, this, the sacred moments, the moments of miracle are often the everyday moments, the moments which if we don't look with more than our eyes or listen with more than our ears, reveal only a gardener, a stranger coming down the road behind us a meal like any other meal. But if we look with our hearts, if we listen with all our being and imagination, what we may see is Jesus himself. 
So sometimes God breaks into our lives with extraordinary experiences of clarity. Sometimes words of a sermon can be more than words. They can feel like means of grace. Sometimes the music that we sing in, in worship can feel like more than music. It can penetrate into the deeper places of our being. Sometimes an amazing sunset captures you as it proclaims the goodness of both creation and creator. And we ought to thank God for those occasional extraordinary experiences. But the Bible reminds us that most of the time Jesus comes to us in ways that are a lot more modest than that. And the question is whether we're paying attention because he comes in the daily routine, in the daily activities that occupy us, in people whose faces pass by, in moments of intimacy and passion, in moments of kindness and compassion, in bread broken and meals shared. He comes particularly, I believe, in moments of great joy and also in moments of great loss. Last week I had the opportunity to see the film A Man Called Otto, uh, starring Tom Hanks. It was based on a, a, a book, a novel written by Frederick Backman in 2012 called A Man Called Ova. So this is like the American version of the Swedish story. And, uh, and it follows the story of this grumpy old man who seems to hate everything in the world, including himself. He finds everything to be a nuisance. Otto is played by Tom Hanks. He lives, a quiet, lives in a quiet suburban neighborhood that's being overtaken by uh, developers, gentrified and occupied by nosy new neighbors. The first part uh, of the film shows his, uh, his, his depression, his sadness, his grief over the loss of his wife, Sonia, who had passed six months prior. He's on this long road to Emmaus and his heart is crusty. And everything bothers him. He's angry about everything. Rising, gas, rising prices, um, bikes that are parked next to gates instead of in the bike racks where they're supposed to go. Um, the fact that at a, you go to a hardware store and you want to buy five feet of rope, you have, to buy, you have to pay for six feet of rope because they charge by the yard only. The what is the world coming to, right? Hanks delivers this amazing performance in his role of a grumpy old man. We've all encountered once or twice in our lives. Well, one day Otto comes home from the store and he meets some new neighbors. A lovely pregnant Hispanic woman by the name of Marisol and her husband and their two beautiful, adorable um, daughters. Well, Otto's irritated because the husband can't figure out how to parallel park and he's got a trailer behind him and so he pulls him out of the car and he decides to do it for him and he parks the car for him and as the movie goes on, Marisol lovingly insinuates herself and her family into Otto's life despite his best efforts to keep them away. She can tell that he's lonely and sad though she doesn't realize the extent of his grief. But it's her constant love, her persistence, her annoying persistence, her outreach and small little ordinary acts of kindness, providing a meal, showing up, that ultimately soften his heart and it changes him and helps him to see that his life matters. Otto's eventually able to look outside his grief to see the pain that others are experiencing as well. So he takes some steps to help them. 
through interactions with a disabled friend that he had, as well as a transgender student, Otto comes to the realization that people need one another and that all human beings have value. By the end of it, we realize that we're all a little bit like Otto. We hold regrets and anger for things we wish we could change from our lives, from our past. We prefer our futures to be solid, concrete promises rather than a sea of unknown possibilities. And we have our own stories, our stories of losses, of grief, our attempts to live through it, to rise above it, to put life back together. You and I have Emmaus stories of remembering and the promises that Jesus Christ comes to us in ordinary strangers like Marisol. And in him, God gives us the gift of faith, the comfort and strength of the resurrection, the power to live with hope and confidence and strength and new life. And so in this uh, season of Easter, we're reminded that ordinary moments become sacred moments, that memory clarifies and seals experiences of grace, and that God lives. God lives. God lives not in a remote corner of the universe, not in a throne invisible up in the sky, not even in creeds, theologies, or sermons. God lives in the world, in ordinary experiences of your life and mine, in your neighborhood, in your classroom, in your boardroom, in the office, in the hospital room, the emergency room, the movie theater, your kitchen, your church. Easter is about an empty tomb, and it's about the companion who comes to us on the dusty road to Emmaus, the city streets. He comes into our lives to be our guest, our host, our companion, our friend, and our Lord. Oh God, how grateful we are for your goodness. We thank you for the resurrection of Jesus and that he lives and that this means for us that the worst things we experience in our lives will not be the last things. The story ends with life. And so we pray that your life will grow in us as we come to follow you a little bit more, recognize your presence in us and around us in the small ordinary ways in which you tell us how much you love us. In Christ's name, amen.